our scripture reading this evening is Psalm 51. We consider this evening from the Belgic Confession, the doctrine of sin. One of the things we're going to be emphasizing this evening is that we learn about, we care about, we emphasize that doctrine for the sake of the gospel. So as we read Psalm 51, the verse we're going to be using in our outline is emphasizing sin, but I hope you'll also notice the confidence and the hopefulness that is expressed with these words. David's confession of sin is for the sake of forgiveness and grace. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have made, whom you have appointed our mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth Produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession is Article 15. I would ask you to turn with me to page 860 in the back of your Psalter hymnals. 
we'll read this article aloud together. God has spoken to us in his word. This is our confession of faith in response to God's word. Article 15 of the Belgic Confession. Let us say together. We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race. It is a corruption of all nature, an inherited depravity which even infects small infants in their mother's womb, and the root which produces in man every sort of sin. It is therefore so vile and enormous in God's sight that it is enough to condemn the human race And it is not abolished or wholly uprooted even by baptism, seeing that sin constantly boils forth as though from a contaminated spring. Nevertheless, it is not imputed to God's children for their condemnation, but is forgiven by His grace and mercy, not to put them to sleep, but so that the awareness of this corruption might often make believers groan as they long to be set free from the body of this death. Therefore, we reject the error of the Pelagians, who say that this sin is nothing else than a matter of imitation. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Reformed Confessions in a way that I think is noticeable, spend much time on the doctrine of sin. And they do so for the sake of the gospel. The basic idea is this, that we must understand the problem if we are going to understand the solution. This is especially noticeable in the Heidelberg Catechism. The entire first section of the Catechism is devoted to the doctrine of sin. And here in the Belgic Confession, You won't have noticed it as much as maybe you should have because we didn't read all of the article last week. But much of Article 14 together with 15 is devoted to this doctrine. The basic idea is this. It feels unpleasant. It's not super fun to talk about. This is not the article of the confession where most of us, myself included, were saying, yay, I'm glad we get to do this one. But it is important And it is valuable, and it is such that we want to learn from the fact that it is set before us by the confession. Remember, this ought to be our posture every Lord's Day as we come to our study of the confessions in the evening service. One of the things we are doing is submitting to this bigger thing that says these are doctrines worth remembering. These are doctrines worth reaffirming and relearning together as God's people. Now, we can say that in general terms, but... It is somewhat actually instinctively obvious when it comes to the doctrine of sin. In so many other areas of life, we would say very clearly, very instinctively, if you're going to get the right solution, it requires taking the time to understand the problem correctly. If you have a physical problem, you want the doctor to do the hard work of actually in a detailed way sorting out just what the problem is because you know that is the right way to getting to what the solution is. Now, is that whole process pleasant? Of course not. We know this instinctively. So, this evening as we do this, we should not feel defensive, though we can acknowledge the question. It might feel strange. But how we understand sin directly affects how we understand the gospel. Thus, I am using as a bit of a theme through this outline the idea of a diagnosis. 
You diagnose the problem, it points you to the solution. Number one on your outline. The concern that is before us is getting the diagnosis right. And we can summarize the language of the Belgic Confession, both Articles 14 and 15, with this sentence. We are sinners, and our sin is not just a matter of what we do, but of who we are in Adam. Here is the basic idea. Now, we're going to say several things uh, to explain this, to defend it, to show its scriptural roots. But the basic idea that Reformed theology emphasizes that is so often neglected is that sin is not just a matter of an occasional mistake. Sin is not just a matter of uh, discrete individual actions, but it flows from who we are. The Belgic Confession used the language of a poisoned spring. Now, we can say this in theological ways we're going to, but we know this instinctively. That when we sin, it's not just the thing, but so often there was something about us that wanted it. And there's often a feeling of wanting it, of being drawn to it, that is contrary to what we would at other times say we want. There's a kind of alienness to it, a a twistedness, a brokenness to it. This is something human beings instinctively feel, and it is what the Belgic Confession is wisely formulating doctrinally. Sin is not just a matter of what we do, but of who we are. Letter A, this understanding of human nature is rooted deeply in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I'm going to be doing some proof texting. This is actually a pretty easy doctrine to proof text. Most are going to be from the New Testament. But we must remember that when the apostles write what they write in the New Testament, they are doing so as those who have, uh, who have been faithful to the scriptures, which for them were simply the Old Testament scriptures. And what they say doctrinally in the New Testament is rooted in the whole way of life that God gave to Israel. Everything about the way of the covenant, about God related to his people, made clear. Your sin is a problem far too big for you to solve on your own. The entire dynamic we have seen in Genesis of everything being rooted by God's promises, that the issue is always a matter of faith in God's promises, all of that reflects the fact that we are sinners, that it must begin with what God does, that God must be the one who makes it happen, beginning, middle, and end. Or you consider all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the constant bloodshed as the pathway into God's presence. Again, repeatedly saying that your sin is something far beyond what you could solve on your own. It requires the promises of God, the work of God on your behalf. Again, I'm going to show you some proof texts, but it's important that we understand the doctrine as being much bigger than those proof texts. It is running throughout the scriptures that our very human nature is broken. Just in our time in Genesis, how many examples of the twistedness and distortedness of our humanity after the fall, and how many examples of the need for God's promises and God's acting to be what solves the problem. Be on your outline. Psalm 51, for example confesses this corruption of our nature when it says, in sin did my mother conceive me. David's entire prayer of confession in Psalm 51 teaches us things about the doctrine of sin and how we ought to understand it. 
One of the most important points is not the one we're highlighting here, but when David says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, this is a prayer happening after grievous sins against other human beings. Very obviously so. And yet he confesses that that sin is ultimately against the Creator. Indeed, why is sinning against fellow human beings so terrible? Because we are made in God's image. And so Psalm 51 emphasizes that uh, theological orientation of our sin. It's always against God. But for this evening, we look especially at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, this is a phrase I've been asked about. I, um, I think there's some confusion about it, and it's confusion that I've never thought of. So I apologize for not explaining this in the past, because we often read this as a prayer of confession. When David says, in sin did my mother conceive me, he does not mean that the act of conceiving was a sin. The scriptures are quite clear that the act of conceiving is a good thing. It's perfectly great. The point David is making here is that when he was conceived, he was a sinner. And it's said perhaps more clearly in the first half of the verse, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That from the moment he was conceived, from the moment he was born, he was a sinner. The point being, his nature, his humanity is twisted and broken. On the basis of all those things we can observe in Genesis, for example, the clear revealing of just how corrupt, how, how corrupt we are, David is confessing that he, from the moment of his existence as a human being, was a sinner. This is what we are expressing doctrinally. Our sin is not just what we do, it is who we are. But Reformed theology is not just concerned to get this right, to say, uh, to, 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 uh, to express clearly that our sin is a matter of our nature. Reformed theology also in many ways emphasizes it. And I want to emphasize the wisdom and the value of making much of this doctrine. Number two, emphasizing the diagnosis. There is great wisdom and gospel benefit in emphasizing this corruption of all nature. So we're going to go a little bit deeper here to particular doctrinal expressions expressed in our Belgic Confession that emphasize, that make much of this reality of our sin. The first doctrine, letter A, original sin. Our sinful nature is inherited from Adam and is a sufficient basis on which to be condemned before God. This is the main theme of Article 15. There are two main passages in the New Testament that teach this most clearly. 1 Corinthians 15, and the one that you have a verse from there on your outline, Romans 5. Where Paul says, very clearly and explicitly, that what Adam did in the garden brought sin and death into the world, and that we, as human beings, inherit that sin and death. And the point here is we don't simply inherit it as a matter of imitation. Like, we all have bad examples, and we inevitably follow those bad examples. But that rather, our sin from the very beginning comes from within us. We are born corrupted. And the Belgic Confession says that sinful nature is a sufficient basis upon which we might be condemned. Romans 5, verse 12. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All of us, we can say, sinned in Adam. He was the covenant head of the human race. We were represented in him. We acted in him when he rebelled. And we therefore have inherited from him that broken sinful nature. As noted there, this is the emphasis of Article 15. We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race. It is a corruption of all nature and inherited depravity which even infects small infants in their mother's womb and the root which produces in man every sort of sin. So notice all of this language of, there the imagery of a root that produces, the language of our very identity being correct, corrupted and what we do flows from that. I hope you sense how the more you are clear about this, it's going to affect what we need the solution to be what we need the gospel to be. And then the confession continues. It is therefore so vile and enormous in God's sight that it is enough to condemn the human race. In Adam, humanity rebelled. In Adam, humanity stands condemned. And in Adam, humanity is corrupted. Our sin flows from that. Next, letter B. There is a further emphasis within all of this that we call total depravity. Summarize it in this way. Because our very nature is corrupted by the fall, everything we do is tainted by sin, and we are entirely unable to save ourselves. This is the main theme of the second half of Article 14 of the Confession, the part that we did not read last week. So Article 14 was about... um, our creation in God's image, and then our fall and rebellion against God in Adam. And we read this language. So he made himself guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. And then the confession goes on to give a whole bunch of scripture references that make the point that therefore we cannot save ourselves. Because our nature is corrupted, everything we do is tainted. And I want to emphasize that word tainted. There are many possible misunderstandings of this doctrine. I'm going to address them. And I find one of the most helpful words to get the picture right is the idea of tainting. If food has been tainted by poison, there's still food there. There's still ways you can say the food is good in a sense. But because there's poison in it, All of the food is ruined by it. All of the food is messed up. It's messed up pervasively, even though there still remains something good about that food. This is what we are saying about our works in Adam. It is not that they are as bad as they could possibly be. It is that they are all in some sense distorted by sin. What we do is not sufficiently done for God's glory. What we do does not sufficiently flow from faith. What we do is not in devotion to or love for God's word. In all of these ways, what we do apart from Christ in Adam is tainted. And one of the most important reasons that point needs to be emphasized, so not just get it right and then put it away, but emphasize it, is that it means we cannot save ourselves. We cannot on our own contribute something to solve the problem. Ephesians 2 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The imagery of being dead in sin captures all of this. It's not that you are drowning on the surface of the ocean and need to have a life preserver thrown to you. You are already dead on the bottom of the ocean. It is not that you are sick and need medicine to make you well. It is rather that you have died in your sins. John 3 verse 27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The conclusion of all of that is that then we need God's acting to rescue us. I want to clarify some things, though, in the midst of that. I've already alluded to this, but it's one of the most common misunderstandings of the phrase total depravity. This does not mean that human beings are as bad as they could be. This does not mean that sin simply controls and determines every last thing that happens in the world. That is what we might call absolute depravity. And so the word total can be a little bit misleading. Some have argued in Reformed theology the better phrase would be pervasive depravity. Indeed, God in his grace restrains sin in the world. It is something God is actively, purposefully, graciously doing. And that restraint of sin means depravity is not absolute. This is where taint is helpful. All of our humanity, every aspect of our humanity is affected by sin, but it remains humanity, and it remains good in very important ways. Another thing we can say because of that, there are important ways in which we can say that even unbelievers do good things. So if what we mean is spiritual good, that could be righteous on its own in God's sight, well then we can do nothing good. But because of God's restraint of sin, unbelievers are able to do good things in other senses, what we call civic good, common good, or good in the ordinary things of life. The goodness of those things is not taken away, and it's very important that we make this distinction. I worry sometimes that in some Reformed theology and church circles, we talk about sin in such a way That when our children and young people go out in the world and they discover non-Christians who are good and wise in all sorts of ways, they don't know what to do with it. They don't have a category for it. If all we are simply told is, hey, we've got everything figured out and people out there are just as bad as they can possibly be, we are setting ourselves up for a crisis because what we are saying is contrary to reality. The scriptures acknowledge wisdom in the world. The scriptures acknowledge good things in the world. And so it's very important that we be careful in how we talk about this doctrine. All of our humanity, all of our humanness is tainted by sin, but God in his grace, with, uh, God in his grace restrains sin. Another very important clarification in this. Christians... In the sense that we mean by by total depravity, meaning unable to do anything good in that ultimate sense, Christians are not totally depraved. Christians are being made new in Christ. Now you say, okay, but don't we sin all the time? Yes, absolutely. But remember, what total depravity is talking about is everything we do being uh, pervaded by sin and therefore unable to please God. In Christ, our actions are able to please God. And so we can distinguish In Adam, all of these things are true of us, but we are not simply in Adam. We are in Christ. 
And in Christ, John Calvin would say, even our very works are sanctified. So the Heidelberg Catechism, when it's making the point that our good deeds cannot earn anything from God, it asks the question, why cannot the good we do earn our righteousness before God? And the language of the question is actually very revealing. The Catechism says, the good we do. It affirms in the very question that we do do good. Now, not good that could earn or deserve or merit something from God because it all depends on our being united to Christ and being sanctified by Christ. We can say uh, all of these things about sin, we ought to say with the qualifier, apart from Christ. In Christ, God is pleased with us and delights in us because our works are sanctified in him. All right. Why do we spend all the time discussing those things? Well, number three on your outline, for the sake of the gospel. It is ultimately good news that we cannot save ourselves because it means that God does not ask us to save ourselves. When the scriptures declare our inability, when the scriptures say things about the pervasiveness of our sin, it is all part of the announcement of the good news that God is saying, you cannot save yourself, therefore stop trying. You cannot save yourself, therefore look by faith to God's promises in Christ. Indeed, we can say this even more specifically, even more specific things about just how sinful we are, the character of our sin, serves the gospel. Letter A, the way in which we inherit Adam's sinful nature is also the way in which we receive the righteousness of Christ. Perhaps the most challenging moment in how we've been talking about sin is the idea that we've, we sinned corporately, collectively, communally in Adam. And the idea that we inherit a sinful nature from Adam. Our American individualism cannot make any sense of that. Now we have to be careful. There are loads of other cultures, times, and places where that makes perfect sense. In many ways, we're the strange ones for being just as radically individualistic as we are. What that doctrine of sin is saying is there's something about humanity that we are not just individuals. And that God views us as not just individuals. That the covenant headship of Adam involves something real and something real that we can inherit. Now we resist that. We don't like it. It challenges us. But the scriptures also speak of the gospel in the same way. It is because God works that way. It is because we as human beings are not just individuals that Jesus Christ as the second Adam can take Adam's place and be the one uh, from whom we receive righteousness. If you want to reject the idea of the covenant headship of Adam, you must also reject the idea of the covenant headship of Christ. And you are left again where we began, an isolated individual trying to be good enough to earn something from God. And so we ought to rejoice, even as that way of speaking about sin challenges us, and it's difficult, we ought to rejoice that because God works that way, God can view us in Christ, so that in Christ we are righteous and made new. Romans 5, this is exactly the point to which Paul goes. When he is discussing the reality of how we receive sin from Adam, he is saying so in service to what he says here. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The point is the parallelness of the two things. This is why the confession speaks so clearly about rejecting the error of the Pelagians. The last sentence in Article 15 Therefore, we reject the error of the Pelagians who say that this sin is nothing else than a matter of imitation. Why is that so bad? You know, it actually would fit American sensibility quite nicely. You know, your problem is you just keep you know, following bad examples. Well, the problem is the gospel then is presented as what you need is good examples. And on that error, Jesus simply becomes the better example that we then are called to choose to follow. And what that does is it places the accomplishing of salvation on us. The way we understand sin affects the way we understand the gospel. B. This gives us confidence in the gospel that salvation is all of grace. You know, I, so many of these things can be said in such a negative way, right? You can't do anything ultimately good. You can't earn anything from God. You cannot deserve from God. And those things need to be say, said negatively. This is the death of all works righteousness. And there are plenty of places where the scriptures forcefully attack that sort of emphasis on our own works. But you see... Once you go through that, once you let that be done, once you receive that from Scripture, what you sail into on the other side is the place of security. Because what that was all was pointing to is the Lord saying, and therefore you're not the one doing it. You're not the one making it happen. You're not the one accomplishing it. Ephesians 1 verse 5, you have been adopted That adoption is not something you can do. It's something God has done for you. You have been brought from death to life. Ephesians 2, the whole point to the language of you're dead in your sins is that you have been made alive in Christ. Understanding sin in that way simply serves the confidence and resting in the gospel that God gives us in Christ. Letter C. This gives us humility toward our fellow human beings as the plight from which we have been saved is shared with all of humanity. This is one of the ways this doctrine forms us. It shapes us. It changes us. It ought to shape our disposition toward the world around us. The book of Genesis has emphasized this time and again telling the story of the beginning of Israel to show that Israel and Abraham was called out from among the nations, shared a plight with the nations. Abraham called as the one through whom all those nations would be rescued. This is Paul's point in the first chapters of Romans, that Jew and Gentile together share the same problem, and Jew and Gentile together have the same solution in Christ. And one of the thought processes we ought to go through as we think about this sort of thing is that 
when that does not translate for us into generosity toward others, when it does not translate into a sense of shared humanity with those who are outside of Christ, the only answer is to begin with receiving it for ourselves and to rest in it for ourselves. It is not, the answer is not effort. The answer is not beating ourselves up. The answer is to allow that to challenge us to say, wow, just how amazing God's grace is for us and to allow that receiving of it to form and change us and how we relate to the world. Because what all of this says, what all of this converges in is the clarity that no sin is too great, no person is too lost, that the gospel from the very beginning is intended to address this sort of sin, to rescue those who are trapped in this kind of sin. And so all it does is ultimately expand into the glory and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, letter D, God reveals these things to us to the praise of his glorious grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.